So I'm not going to lie to you, it's a bit of a slow week right now for film and television. There's not a lot of news, not a lot of headlines going around. Not that we are a headline-grabbing channel. You know, we talk about all things in, in, in film and television. It doesn't necessarily have to be about news or casting or this, that, and the other. But it's fun to talk about it. It's exciting. So there are still topics. Don't worry. This is a... You know, I'm not just going to ramble on. There are there are still things to go over, uh, like the Idol, for example, which is the new the new HBO series coming in about a few weeks. That just premiered at Cannes. The reviews are sounding uh, pretty indifferent, pretty divisive. So we'll go over that. And uh, Asteroid City, which is Wes Anderson's next film, that also premiered at Cannes. We'll go over that. But the first segment I want to begin this episode with is what have I watched lately? And that is, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite literally what it is. It's what have I watched in the past week? And the first film I've watched is, uh, is a film called a beautiful mind. And uh, this is directed by Ron Howard. Who's one of the, one of the greats is his daughter. Uh, fuck. What's her name? I can I drawn a blank. Everybody. I'm sure you've probably seen his daughter in films as well. Uh, Bryce Dallas Howard. Excuse, that's her name. A great actress and uh, a great filmmaker as well. We see that she's starting to to dip her hand in Star Wars and things like that. But Ron Howard did a, an amazing job directing this film. I think it won, yeah, it says it won four Oscars and uh, 69 nominations total. I, I assume that's probably including other other award ceremonies, like maybe BAFTA or something like that. Uh, it's it's an incredible film. It's about a real person named John Nash, and the synopsis here at IMDb reads: After John Nash, a brilliant but asocial mathematician, accepts secret work in cryptography, his life takes a turn for the nightmarish. So that doesn't really say much. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, and if you haven't seen the film, I am going to talk about spoilers. It's been out for you know a very long time, so uh, this is your warning. But pretty much it boils down to this is somebody who's incredibly smart who is a genius but he's tortured by schizophrenia he's uh, he's a paranoid schizophrenic and he re- he's he's undiagnosed most of his entire life he's seeing these hallucinations but to him they're not hallucinations they're 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 just people they're just people that he's interacting with he's not aware at least it doesn't seem like he's aware that these are that these are uh, delusions and um, knowing that he, had, like, I knew he had schizophrenia before watching this film. I, that I knew. And I feel like I kind of cheated myself because every scene where we're seeing his hallucinations, like Paul Bettany's character, Charles, the moment we meet Charles, I knew right away that he wasn't, that he wasn't a real person. I knew that he was an apparition. And there are some clues that give it away. Like, for example, Charles... He meets John and he and he introduces himself and he says, "I'm I'm your roommate. I'm excited to you know to be spending time with you this year and, and blah blah blah." And as soon as he said that, I'm thinking, "Well, I don't see a bunk bed. I don't see. I don't even see a couch. I don't even see enough room for a second person in in, in this room. So where where are you sleeping? Where where are you you know where, where are you gonna go?" Um, so that kind of gave it away, and and very similar to other films like you know like Fight Club with Brad Pitt's character, uh, he doesn't often interact with other people. You usually only see him when he's when he's with Edward Norton's character. the the same The same can be said for Charles. Charles, I don't think you ever see Charles interact with anybody else in this film, even when they're uh, 
even when John is is at the is at the bar, Charles, to Ron Howard's credit and, and his camera work, he never positions Charles in the same frame with the real people that John is interacting with. You know the 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 guys we meet early in the film that you can't really tell if they're trying to be John's friend or if they're heckling him or bullying him. Um, or if they're just kind of teasing him or whatever, but those are the real people. They're they're there, and Ron Howard never never has Charles in the same frame as them. Charles is always off to the side. He's he's either against the wall or he's behind a a pillar outside or he's behind some kind of corridor. So it's very clever visual storytelling from Ron Howard, of course, one of the greats. And that's the same for Ed Harris's character. When we first see Ed Harris's character, his name is Parcher in the film. Uh, he's he's standing above everything that's happening uh, with, with the characters talking to John Nash and, and sort of giving him the uh, the the sort of mission statement on what he's going to do. And what what's happening in John's mind is is the synopsis says he's into cryptography. And it's not really true. Because of his schizophrenia, he has convinced himself that he's working for the government, he's working for the Pentagon, and his job is to uh, decipher hidden codes and hidden messages in in things like articles or in just everyday published material. And obviously, it's not true. And but but that's what he believes. That that's what he's convinced himself. So now he he can't even read anything without looking at it from that that point of view of, of, of surfing and fishing for something fishy, <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah, um, overall it's an incredible film. Russell Crowe gave an amazing performance. I wonder of the four awards of the four Oscars at this one, what, what they were. So I'm trying to figure that out here. Um, let me see. Okay. So it won best picture. Uh, Okay, Russell Crowe didn't win, but he was nominated. Um, Jennifer Connelly did win Best Supporting Actress, which she was fantastic. I didn't really get a chance to talk about her. She plays his wife. Um, Ron Howard won Best Director. The film also won Best Best Screenplay, Best Adapted Screenplay, because it, it came from a book. And the screenwriter is, is Akiva Goldsman, for those of you who did not know. Uh, it was also nominated for Editing, Makeup, an original score and BAFTA awards. I mean, we won't really go over that, but yeah, so the, the film was great. I loved it. Very, very powerful because at the end of the film, he wins the Nobel prize. And, uh, and it, the, the biggest message and the biggest takeaway that I had was we, many of us have these demons that we deal with, but it's up to us to either let them consume us and let this and let them hinder us from our from our full potential and living the life that we want to live or we can let them defeat us and we can let them kind of keep us drowning that that's the biggest takeaway i had because he he wouldn't have won that nobel prize and he wouldn't have stood in front of all those people and gave that amazing speech at the end of the film if he had let charles and ed harris's character consume him and uh, and take over his life. So it was a very very powerful performance and a very powerful story. And uh, <clears throat> I aft afterwards you can look it up yourselves. I looked up the real uh, the real John Nash and uh, 
very similar to Russell. Well, I guess Russell Crowe is very similar to him because he's the actor. <laughs> so, yeah. So, that's the film that I watched. Uh, the second film is called History of Violence. And uh, what, what, what made me want to watch this film was, number one, I am a fan of David Cronenberg, who's the director. Um, but I was watching one of those GQ career breakdown videos that, that I'm sure some of you have seen when you get like a famous actor or a singer or a, a filmmaker that, that go on and they talk about their trajectory and where they came from and, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, but this one was a little bit different. It was it was one of those GQ interviews, but it was with James Gunn, and he actually listed his personal top five favorite comic book films. And I was very surprised, and I was expecting him to say, this uh, old Marvel movie or this DC movie, uh, like traditional comic book characters that, that I would, would have think, that I would have thought of. Um, and there was that there. Like, I think his list was, I think number five was Deadpool. Uh, number four was Old Boy, uh, which right there, I I had never seen that film, but I've seen clips of it. I've seen pictures of it. I didn't know that was a that was from a comic book, so that that surprised me. But I can't remember the, the rest of his list, or rather the order of the list, because I know he had the original Richard Donner Superman, um, and then I think he also had, he had Into the Spider-Verse, uh, but then he had History of Violence, which is this film. And once again, I hadn't seen the film, but I'd, I'd come across it on the streaming platforms, and, and I, I'd seen it, and it just—I never thought for a second that I would, that that was a comic book film. And he said, "Yeah, it was. It was adapted from from a—I don't know if it was from a novel or a comic specifically, but if it was on that list, I assume it was a comic." And so that, you know, that inspired, that not really inspired me, it's watching a movie, that that encouraged me to want to check it out. Uh, and not not even just that, it wasn't just because of that reason, when he talked about the film, and he kind of gave, he almost sold me, he pitched me it, and so I thought it sounded interesting, so I gave it a watch. And I don't feel the same as James Gunn, I, at times I thought this movie was actually kind of funny, and I don't think it was intending on being funny, and, and specifically it was, it had a lot to do with the dialogue and how the film was written. There, there were many scenes where the dialogue just felt kind of wooden, and it, it, I don't know. It's it, for most of the time I noticed it between the scenes with Viggo Mortensen's son and this bully that keeps picking on him throughout the film. It just feels very like stereotypical, like "Give me your lunch money, kid," like that, you know that. And it did come out, you know, a, a fairly long time ago, so times were different, but. Even back then, I don't feel like there ever really was bullies that existed as, you know, as typical as that. You know what I mean? Um, usually, there, there, there's there's something else going on. So, I thought that was, was kind of hilarious. The, the scene where I laughed the hardest was when Viggo Mortensen's son is finally fed up with this bully. And he just suddenly turns into... John Wick and just takes him and his friend out within seconds. And, you know, I can kind of understand what, what David Cronenberg was trying to tell us, the audience, he's trying to tell us the audience that his son has inherited some of his dad's, uh, you know, fighting, uh, intangibles, if you will. So I, I get that, but they've positioned him so hard to be this, this quirky, 
reserved, anxious person that suddenly he's just like, fuck you, man, don't fuck with me. And he just starts kicking people and, 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 and just, yeah, totally out of left field. And I, I just thought it was pure comedy. I, I couldn't take it serious. Now, the highlights of the film is, is Viggo Mortensen. Single hair, single-handedly carries this film. Without him, I probably wouldn't have liked it. And overall, I, I mean, I lean towards this being not my favorite film. Shocker. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a bad movie. I'm not going to lie to you. Now there, there are some, some qualities that, that I think are, are very interesting. Uh, the fight choreography, the scenes where Viggo Mortensen shows, shows us the audience that he has this past. And, uh, let me actually talk about what the movie's about. Cause I'm sure you're, you know, some of you who haven't seen the film are probably wondering what the fuck I'm talking about. So it's about this guy named Tom Stahl and, uh, we're, we're, we're sort of told in the beginning of the film that he's this everyday man. He lives in this small town, lives a very comfortable life. He has his family. He's a businessman. He owns a, he owns a little you know cafe, and there's nothing more to it than that. Until suddenly, some of these men start to appear and start to you know try and interact with him. And, uh, and you start to see that, okay, maybe this Tom Stahl guy has some kind of history here with these people, and, and it's the people that are trying to interact with him are clearly from, you know, organized crime. And, uh, and, and, and you could tell that he has this past. He has this, this violent past. I mean, the film's called history of violence and he's taken all these people out one by one. And as he's doing so, we're, we're starting to see the, um, the appearance of, of who he really is, which is his character name, Joey. I can't remember his last name. Um, which is who he really is. Tom Stahl is just a name that he that he took up. Um, and then by the end of the film, we see he finally addresses and he finally kind of goes in head head on. And to my surprise, you know, we see William Hurt, the the late William Hurt, rest in peace, who's his who's his brother back in Philly, and he kind of just addresses his problems head on and kills all of them. So, you know, it, it was maybe maybe bad is a, is a little bit too much. Um, I think my biggest problem was the writing. I think even some of the conversations between Vigo and his wife, I just, I, I don't know. It, it just, it, it just was cringy at times is honestly the, the best way I can put it. And it wasn't the acting. It, like I said, it was just the words that they were saying. I just, I, I didn't believe the relationship there. That's just me. So yeah, um, I would have liked to have watched more, more things, but I've been really busy. Uh, I'm working on my short film right now. And uh, we're we're sort of pivoting a bit. I'm rewriting it, and uh, we, we me and my me and my director Sheswin Sheswin Kareem, who's been on this podcast before, he came up with a really good idea, and I agree with the idea. But now it's it's going to take time because I got to rewrite the script. And but we we ultimately want to make the best short film we can with the limited resources that we have. And uh, so yeah, so I'll talk about that more once we're once we're fully shooting in and, and, and it's actually happening. Cause I don't know. I, I, I get a little superstitious. I don't want to jinx it. I don't want to, you know, but anyways, where are we here? Okay. So let's talk about some news going on that I, that I teased in the beginning with the Cannes film festival. 
So we're going to talk about The Idol first. This is the new show coming out on June 4th, I believe, from the Euphoria showrunner, creator, director, writer, Sam Levingson. And I'm a big fan of his. I think his film that he did back in 2021, um, uh, Malcolm and Marie, was outstanding. I absolutely love that film. And if you haven't seen it, please go check it out. It's incredible. It's a very easy watch. I think it's kisses around the one and a half hour mark, give or take. Great film. Um, and Euphoria, like I just said, that show has, when we look back in the the 2010s and probably even you know this decade as well, when we think about the zeitgeist and we think about pop culture, we're I, I think we're part of that discussion is going is going to have to include Euphoria just because it's massed such a huge following, and I very much like the show, and uh, so I was excited hearing that this was his next project out. And The weekend is in it, and Lily Rose Depp is in it, and I think she's a great actress, but The weekend has never acted before. Um, that's, all, I'm not, that's always kind of concerning to me. I'm not the biggest fan of that. Getting, you know, there are hundreds of millions of starving actors that make it their life purpose to pursue this craft every day. They work toward this craft every day, and you just hand out these roles to people that, you know, don't have that same passion for the craft or maybe not the same passion, but they, they haven't, they haven't earned their stripes and put in the work toward that craft the same way that other people have. And look, I'm not delusional. I'm not an idiot. I understand they, they, they hand out roles to very well-known people that have large followings. It's because they want to garner commercial success. They want to garner attention and they know that, oh, Harry Styles is in my movie, so you know I'm I'm gonna, you know I'm I'm gonna go check it out. And not to throw him under the bus, I actually think he's he's a he's a decent actor. Um, but you know, once again, we we have another case where we're giving a major supporting slash leading role to somebody who's never acted in a film or television project before. But that doesn't mean it can't be good. We'll have to wait and see. But in preparation for this for this podcast, I read some articles, and the, the biggest article that kind of left me wondering about the show was the Hollywood Reporter's article, and I'm not going to read it, but basically the, the conclusion that I drew from reading it was that the show was very self-indulgent, and the, the very thing it, it was trying to, to be was a satire on, on Hollywood and, and on you know these predatory figures that try and take advantage of people. It became that very thing it, it, it initially didn't want to be. That's, that's the conclusion that I drew. And uh, the reviews are not looking good for the show. I'm just going to be honest with you. Um, so let, let's read over some of some of the Hollywood or excuse me, some of the Rotten Tomato reviews here because uh, they premiered the first two episodes at Cannes and uh, yeah, it's not looking good. It's sitting right now at a 17%. Granted, there's not a lot of reviews because it, it only had a you know that one screening. Um, but let's go over them. So we'll we'll read the we'll read the two positive ones before we get into the majority. Uh, so here we go. The Idol is a raucous, engrossing ride on an industry nightmare train bound to careen off a off a cliff. And the way it captures the sickness of the fame machi- fame machine will stay with you longer after the credits roll. 
the next one here. Levingston's whole deal is not for everyone and often not for me, but the idol offers up enough regular old entertainment to balance out his aggressive flourish and the bluster of his thematic ambitions. So, I mean, even those reviews, I wouldn't say were necessarily like, this is the best thing on TV that you're going to watch this year. There's nothing like that. It was just kind of, you know, this is okay. That's that. That's sort of what I, that's the impression that I get. Now let's read the the rest of the reviews. The Idol is grim, gross, and vulgar. It's full of preposterous recycled ideas and pornish sex that would be at home on HBO Cinemax, not the main HBO, which we know loves Emmy Awards. We're not going to read all of them, but we'll read, you know, like four or five of them. Um, the Idol is substance through style. It's just a phony, uninspired, and manipulative as the corporate me- machinations of the music industry Jocelyn is trapped by. Uh, the idol lacks select or lacks the requisite self-awareness to be much of anything really. It's the extension of a music star's misplaced self-belief of his potential movie star credentials. Oh shit! In short, it's crude, gross, and sexist. Okay, so that I think he's obviously referring to the weekend. Let, let's read that little part again. It's the, it's the extensions of a music star's misplaced self-belief of his potential movie star credentials. Okay, so I think that kind of says a lot and. It, it might sound like I'm being kind of, you know, negative towards the weekend. And I don't want to be. I, I'm, I'm just telling you what I think. And if you're a friend of mine, if you if you know me personally, uh, you probably know that I'm a big fan of the weekend. He's he's he, he's probably my favorite artist to listen to music wise. And when I first heard this news, you know, I felt bitter, like I talked about in the beginning, but I was you know, part of me was was curious and interested because this sort of story falls a lot in line with the kind of music he makes, which could be part of the self-indulgent factor to it because I've read the Vanity Fair article and they were saying allegedly a lot of the show was reshot to sort of cater to, you know, his vision, so to speak. So I'm paraphrasing. It's not beat by beat what they said, but that's sort of, that's sort of the gist. So yeah, that that that's not a great sign because um, obviously the the music the weekend's music deals a lot with um, heartbreak, sex, drugs, violence, stuff like that, which very much falls in line with a lot of the things that the show seems to be tackling. We'll read a few more. Uh, the script seems calculated to fool audiences into thinking they're observing how Hollywood operates when so much when so much of it amounts to tawdry cliches. Uh, we'll read one more here. Levinson applies his efficient and stylish direction to every scene. Some of them have momentum, others are contradictory, and most of them are confusing. It makes you wonder if in trying so hard to be transgressive, the show ultimately becomes regressive. Yeah, that, that's kind of what I mentioned in the beginning. It was it intended on being a satire, but the very thing it was trying to to be a satire of, it became. That's sort of that's sort of what I'm getting at here. And apparently, the original director of the show was never even Sam Levinson. The Weeknd was a producer, and the the director that he helped bring on. Apparently, they clashed, and and you know, creative differences, whatever you want to call it. And then she departed, and so he came on, uh, and, and then I guess he kind of fell in line with what the Weeknd wanted to do with the show. Now, I, I don't know if The Weeknd is like the main producer because it's very, you know, it's very common that people will get producer credits thrown around in Hollywood and, and really there's only like one true producer of a film or television show. So I'm not sure if he's kind of like that main producer, but it seems like he, he was very involved in the in the process of getting this made, of getting it greenlit. 
Um, yeah, okay. I, I won't read anymore. I'm sure you guys at this point get the gist. Look, I'm still going to check it out. I'm still interested. Uh, but it doesn't seem... It seems like the... It seems like style over substance to me. Um, Why? Well, I, I, it says here, substance through style, whatever. It seems like the show is, is, is prioritizing, you know, being this uh, controversial... Um, you know, through the lens of the exploitation rather than telling a, telling a narrative to me, at least it, it seems like it's, it's just prioritizing being, it, it, it was described that I think the very, the vanity fair article, they said that the show, they, that they feel the show is, is trying way too hard to just be edgy and to, and to just sort of feed off of vibes similar to what Euphoria did. That That's sort of what they talked about in their article. And, and to be honest, that's kind of the impression that I'm getting. But once again, I'm when I, when I watch the show, I'm going to just go in fresh. I'm not going to think about the reviews. I'm not going to let that cloud my judgment. I'm going to form my own opinion. And if I love it and if I feel completely different, I'm going to come on this show on Unbashful and I'm going to I'm going to voice my opinion. And I'm not going to be, I'm not going to try and uh, regurgitate however, how, how other people feel. Now, with that being said, if I go in and I didn't like it, and maybe I, maybe I share some of the opinions that they do, and that's how I genuinely feel. I'm not just trying to feed off negativity. Well, then, I, then I'll voice that opinion, right? So, but anyways, the, the show will come out and maybe the audience score will be a lot more favorable then again, there are a lot of impressionable people out there, so maybe this will feed to their to their fantasy. Maybe like maybe the, this is how they would like to see themselves partying with these big, you know, powerful sleazy people in Hollywood, and maybe this will gravitate towards their tastes. Who knows? But when the show comes out, I will talk about it on Unbashful. Now let's move on to Asteroid City. So, just speaking for me personally, I'm not the biggest fan of Wes Anderson. I can appreciate his work and his style of filmmaking. I know a lot of people love the symmetrical cinematography that he has in a lot of his films. Some very iconic shots. I get that. Uh, and his films always have incredible talent. There's always amazing actors. Uh, so, a lot, a lot of times he has a lot of recurring actors in his movies, which, you see, which we see with a lot of filmmakers. And uh, his new film coming out is Asteroid City. And while acknowledging not the biggest fan of his, I am interested in this. It looks, it looks interesting <laughs> is the best way I can put it. It seems like it, it could be about aliens or some kind of identified object. And uh, once again, the talent of this cast looks incredible. You have Scarlett Johansson, Tom Hanks, you have Steve Corral, Brian Cranston, you know, the list goes, I think Adrian Brody, who's, who's once again, he's been in quite a few of his films. At this point, I think he's in there as well. So it looks interesting, and, and it premiered at Cannes, and we're going to go over some of the reviews. Now, unlike The Idol, uh, this film is getting a lot of positive reviews. So let's go over a few of them here. So some guy just just said, kept it short and sweet, top-tier Wes Anderson. Great. Um, and then his original score, he gave it a 7.5 out of 10. Another person said, Wes Anderson returns with one of, with one of his most dazzling, rich, and playfully self reflexive films today i can't read today brought to eye-popping life by an all-timer ensemble okay pretty good another person said realize and glorious widescreen kodak film and boxy black and white by veteran cinematographer robert yeoman 
Asteroid City is a film of beauty in all of its luxurious vividness. Very nice. It's a very good thing for fans for the, of the filmmaker who adore Wes Anderson's idiosyncratic storytelling, quirky casting, and obsessive production design. We'll read. We'll, we'll read a few more. Uh, Asteroid City reminds you that Wes Anderson remains what he's always been, despite what the AI bros might have might have you believe. Completely inimitable. There's only there's a few bad reviews. Um, for a movie so curiously weightless, it seems awfully pleased with itself. Its moments of magic evaporating almost instantaneously. Asteroid City looks amazing, but as a movie, it's for Wes Anderson heart. It's for Wes Anderson diehards only, and maybe even not many, not too many of them. Okay, so we'll read one more. A film that sneaks up on you, that fools you into thinking it's just a scattershot collection of discreet little details and gags. But the deeper this movie disappears into itself, the more its play-like rhythms begin to create their own rhymes. Pretty good. Pretty good. Okay. What is this film actually about? I know I just said aliens. I could be way off, though. That's just sort of the impression that I got with the trailer. Asteroid City. Synopsis. By the way, I apologize if my reading is kind of jumbled. Will not lie to you. I'm working off of a few hours of sleep right now. So my brain is not operating at uh, 100%. Uh, okay, so the synopsis says, World-changing events spectacularly disrupt the itinerary of Junior Stargazer slash Space Cadet Convention in an American desert town circa 1955. Okay, um, not too sure exactly what that means. Uh, world-changing events spectacularly disrupt the itinerary of Junior Stargazer Space Cadet. I mean, it could have something to do with aliens, or it could be something else. I guess I'll have to wait and see. But it's got an 86% right now in Rotten Tomatoes, so far better than what we just talked about with The Idol, which is sitting at 17%. With The Idol, I'm getting the impression that the audience score is going to be pretty good. I think I think people are going to gravitate towards this, because like I said, there's a lot of people out there that really want to escape, which is, I mean, that, that is part of the, the purpose of film and television is to escape from our lives. I'll, I'll admit that myself. Um, you know, it's, it's that that's inherent obviously. Uh, but there's some people that fantasize about living in Hollywood and being a movie star and, and this, that, and the other, and, and what that life could entail. Um, speaking like I am that I'm not, <laughs> um, but maybe that those kind of people will be drawn into this. And I'm not saying if you enjoy the show, that's the reason why. I mean, if you genuinely enjoy, you genuinely enjoy. I think I don't think you should try and explain yourself. Who knows? I might love it, right? We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, so pretty good. Pretty good reviews for Asteroid City. I will check it out. Maybe this will be the first Wes Anderson film that I love. None of his movies are bad or terrible or anything like that. They're just... I, I feel like they're, his style is just not really for me that just like some of the other great filmmakers that I love like Quentin Tarantino there's I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that for you know for someone like me that his style falls in line with the kind of filmmaking stories that I like to watch the entertainment I like to consume but for some people that just might not be for them and it's totally fine so that's pretty much it for the movie news we're actually going to shift and we're going to talk about the NBA 
So I haven't talked about basketball or the NBA or anything like that in quite a while. And there's there's some reasons for that, which I'll get to later. But we'll talk about the playoffs for just a brief segment. So the Lakers obviously just got eliminated. They got swept by the Denver Nuggets. And it looks like the Heat, well, the Heat lost game four. So they're going to go back to Boston for game five. Which I uh, which I assume they're probably going to close them out over there because I don't think they want to I don't think they want to give Boston the momentum uh, to possibly be the first team ever to come back from from down 0-3. Which I mean I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, I don't think they'll be the first. So it seems like we're we're we are very close to getting a Denver Nuggets Miami Heat NBA Finals, which I'm totally fine with, and I hope that happens. But to talk about the Lakers, you know, they've they've had a, a very tumultuous season. You know, they, they started off the year very, very bad. I think they're around two and ten. And uh, it wasn't looking good. They they were out of the playoff picture. They were 13th, 14th place. And they 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 made some changes, they made some shifts, they pivoted, and they had a pretty successful trade deadline. You have to give Rob Palenka credit, who is the who's the the sort of head of basketball operations over there. And he scrambled and he did the best he could. And he did a pretty damn good job for someone that 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 had such a you know limited time to figure out what do we do with Russ's contract? What do we how do we find some more shooters, get some more depth? We're so top heavy, we have no bench. And I think he did a pretty good job. So you have to give him credit. And LeBron looked uh looked great, you know, even throughout most of the playoffs. I know he had a foot injury. Um the, the thing about LeBron, and I've talked about this before, you know, I'm not going to get into the whole GOAT debate. If I am, it's uh, I want to get into it with somebody who's who's sitting across from me so we can actually have, you know, a conversation. Because for those of you listening right now, um, I believe LeBron James is the greatest player of all time. Yep, you can check out of the podcast if you want. <laughs> That's just my opinion. Um, but I'm not going to get into the reasons why. If you guys really want to hear me talk about that, I'll find an avid Michael Jordan fan. They're not hard to find, and, uh, and 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 we'll have a respectful debate about it. But besides the fact, I think he's the best player of all time. But I understand that he is on his his last couple of years playing, and while he does look a little old, shocker, the man's thirty eight. He's still putting up incredible numbers, averaging damn near a triple double, playing incredible. Um. But he's shooting a lot more threes. He's driving to the basket less. And yes, that could have to do with the foot injury. But it seems like that is a a conscious effort to preserve as much energy as he can for the moments that he has to, you know, spin move between three guys and, and, and take it to the basket through that contact, which I get it. You know, he can't be uh, putting his body through the same stress and, and 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 harm that he did when he was you know 25 26 years old playing for the heat and playing for the Cavs. Uh, but in this series I, I I don't know how they weren't able the series with Denver I, I don't know how they weren't able to get one game you know Anthony Davis he he, he, had, a, he had a lot of great games this playoff run but he had, he had a lot of stinkers he had a lot of games where you know 12 13 points, you know, eight rebounds. That's not good enough. You are a, you are on that top top seventy five uh, anniversary team. You know, you 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 can't. I, I'm not expecting a, a 40, 40 point double double or triple double every game. No, 
but you got to you got to shoot more shots in the fourth quarter. You got to you got to give us more than than 12 to 12 to 15 points on a nightly basis. I think minimum he should be scoring 20 points a game. That's just me. Uh, but like I said, you know, he had a lot of great games and he had a, he had a very good second half to the season compared to where where they started in the beginning. And uh and yeah, so they're gone. They're out. The Clippers are gone as well. I, I think Russ will probably be gone. I don't think you're going to see him with the Clippers next year. I just, I don't even, I don't even understand why they picked him up. Like they saw what happened with the Lakers. I, I didn't know what they thought was going to be any different about it. And I don't want to. I'm not a Russ hater. I just think Russ is at a point in his career where, you know, he's getting older. He's still very athletic. He's more athletic than 99% of the general public, but compared to his, you know, his 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 peers and his contemporaries in the in the NBA, he has declined a bit athletically. And when you're when you're one of these players in the NBA that you solely depend on your athleticism over something like skill, you're not going to age well in the NBA. We've seen a lot of play. That's how a lot of players just age out um, after like year 12. You know, because they don't got the same bounce anymore. They can't. They can't make a jump shot, or you know, they can't play make for others. So now they've become sort of a liability to your team. And you know, I hate to say it, Russ is obviously going to go down as one of the greatest point guards of all time. And he sort of, you know, made the triple double this thing that we we sort of just kind of dis- disregard at this point because he he made it so. So um, popular, I, I guess. Not that it's like a, a trend of clothing, but you know, before him, you had Oscar Robinson, of course. But you never really had, you know, the triple double wasn't really happening on a nightly basis. Now every player is is is, is getting a triple double. Now triple doubles aren't as impressive anymore. Like I said, that's attributed to the success that Russell Westbrook has had. But if you if you can get these triple doubles on a night to night basis, I mean that's great as long as that's equating to wins. And we're seeing that that is happening with Nikola Jokic. He's getting these ridiculous stat lines of like 30, 14, and, and, and 12, but his team is winning. You know they're they're sweeping the Lakers with the all time leading score, right? So as long as it equates to winning, I think you're gonna get you're gonna get people reacting to you know you know to it the way that we were with Russ. But what happened with Russ is that, you know, after a year, after the year he won the MVP, he was he was getting the triple doubles. And even the second year, it was still pretty amazing to see. But then after that, we were kind of like, okay, you know, we get it. You're getting the triple doubles. Now it's starting to seem like it's not happening naturally. It's happening intentionally. And it's 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 not actually, it's actually taking away from wins. It's just, it's just you you know, boxing out your own teammates like Steven Adams so you can so you can get a, a ninth or tenth rebound. You know, that's just me. Um who do I want to who who am I rooting for now to win this NBA finals? I, I'm in a position where I, I would honestly be happy with either team. With either team. But if I had to pick one, I would probably pick Miami. Just because just because of Jimmy Butler and Obviously, they went up against the Lakers in the bubble, and Jimmy Butler had a historic run. But I would argue he's had he's had more of an impressive run now than he did in the bubble because people are starting to actually take it serious. People were disregarding it because, oh, it's the bubble. You know, they don't there. There's no distractions. They get to just you know play ball and hang out in their hotel rooms. You know, 
they wouldn't be playing like this otherwise. And now he's proving people wrong. He's performing on the biggest stage. There's no COVID restrictions anymore. He's playing like the player that he's always been, which is which is a Hall of Famer. He he will go down as a Hall of Famer. And similar to the Lakers, the Miami Heat were not showing any signs of the success that they're having right now. They were they barely made it into the play-in. They lost the first play-in game. They were hovering around the 8th, ninth seed, I think, most of the year. And it it seemed like their best days as a team were behind them. It seemed like it, it seemed like that narrative of the bubble was true. But then the playoffs happened and that switch turned on. And here they are. So you have to give them credit. Now with the Nuggets, I mean they, they were the number one seed the whole year. Uh, but I think a lot of people didn't take that serious. They thought, well, it's a regular season and uh, you know they're they're not gonna be able to take take out some of these teams like Memphis. Whoever really thought Memphis was going to do anything. But people were thinking Memphis was going to be a dangerous team to look out for. They thought, you know, Sacramento, Golden State, obviously, can't forget about them. They were the, you know, defending champs. Although they had a pretty rough year, all things considered. But yeah, for me, I, I, would, I would be fine with either team winning because both of these teams have worked so hard They've 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 been so close to this chance of of either getting to the finals or being in the finals and losing in the case of Miami, but this is Denver's first finals. Denver Denver has been in the conference finals within the last couple of years, but they've they've fallen short. So now you know these teams have worked so hard to get in this in this position, and they might not have this chance or opportunity ever again. So I would be happy with either team winning, um, but for me, if I had to pick one that I would like to see win, I'd pick Miami. Um, so that's just me. So let, let me know what your thoughts are on the NBA Finals. What team did you pick going in? I picked Milwaukee. That was the biggest shock. I thought Milwaukee was going to win, and they got gentlemen swept by Miami, which was, to this day, that might be the biggest surprise of this Finals. I know Giannis was in and out of the lineup due to injury, but even more than the sweep of the Lakers, that, I mean, that shocked, I, you know, to be honest, I'd say it's probably tied. I'd say that and the gentleman's sweep with Milwaukee, probably the two biggest surprising, you know, stories of, of, of this NBA Finals that I'll look back and, and remember. But I talked in the beginning about how I haven't really watched the NBA nearly as much. And uh, and, and it's, it's due to a couple of factors, but... And, and this this isn't exclusive to the NBA. We're, we see this in other sports. But I'm just speaking for the NBA because this is the only sport that I watch. NBA players, not all of them, but a lot of these NBA players are almost like freelance independent contractors, right? What do I mean by that? They play on a team, but it doesn't seem like there's ever any commitment to that team. And as soon as a little bit of adversity hits, they say, "I'm done. Trade me. I want to go here. I want to go there. If you don't, if you if you don't take me to my destination, I'm just gonna sit. I don't care. Find me. <laughs> I'm I'm not gonna go to work." And now it seems like you have these guys on 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 these NBA teams, but they're not really a part of these teams. These are just the current locations where they're where they're conducting their own business 
their own agenda, right? I know agenda is a term that gets thrown around. I don't, I don't mean anything political by that. I just mean like what they're trying to personally accomplish. And that's why I love Jimmy Butler so much. And that's why I love the Heat because he's one of the few players in this league, along with, you know, guys like Dame, where he's actually committed to his team. He's fighting through adversity. He's not quitting. He's not looking elsewhere. Like everything that's going on with James Harden, I just, it, that's part of the reason why I, I, I don't, I, I don't watch the NBA nearly as much. You have guys like James Harden. He's in a great position. I know they lost. I know they got eliminated, but they could run him back next year, make some minor changes to the personnel. They're going to have to get a new coach now, which I think was ridiculous firing Doc. I know this. they lost in the Game 7, and, and Doc is like, as the all-time most Game 7 losses. I still wouldn't fire him, to be honest with you. But now there's reports that James Harden wants to go back to Houston. So he, he wants to move backwards. So now it te- now that tells me he doesn't want to win. He he just wants to coast in these last three four years of his career, and he just wants to kind of end it with Houston. And Houston is is in the lottery. They're one of the worst teams in the league. So he's going to leave a great position he's in right now. He's you know they didn't win obviously, but they still had a a, a pretty impressive playoff run all things considered. And you're going to leave that. You're going to leave a year's worth of you know, team building and, and, and chemistry with your team. And, and you finally have kind of figured out the pick and roll with Joel. You're going to leave that. And you're going to go to play with Jalen green down in Houston and win 20 games. I just, I don't see it. I, I don't get it. You're, you're going backwards. And that's part of the thing here. And it's, it's same thing with Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving. You know, these guys are upset for whatever reason, and you know, I understand we don't know these people. There, there could be mental health issues, and, and I'm, I'm very sensitive to that. But I'm just speaking on behalf of the basketball. A lot of these players are facing adversity, and their teams aren't winning, or maybe there's a dispute in the locker room between a player, and it's like they roll over and they're like, "I'm done. Get me out of here. I don't want to be here anymore. Uh, I, I want to go to this team. I want to go to the best team in the league now." It's just like, as as a fan. It leaves a sour taste in my mouth because now it's like, how can I root for this team when it feels like all these players are are, are, are thinking just about themselves and their future with in their personal future and where they're going to go rather than the team itself? That's just my opinion. So, And I know one could argue that, well, whenever a franchise and whenever a GM wants to make a trade... They can just do it at a moment's notice, and 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 that's it. And they can just disrupt some a player's lives, and their family, and have no regard for it, and 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 whatever. The only counter I'll have to that is, the GM has a job. His job is to build the best team. For it, his job is to build the best team. That is his job. And if he feels like this player is not contributing to that goal and to that long-term success, he's going to have to trade him. He's going to have to waive him or whatever, right? So ultimately, he's doing what's best for the team and the organization. And I understand sometimes we see some shady shit go down. I'm not saying it's it's always as cut and dry. Sometimes these GMs are shady with how they conduct business. I fully acknowledge that. But generally speaking, they're doing what's best for 
for the team, for the franchise. And I feel like that attitude and that mindset isn't isn't there with a lot of these NBA stars. They're just thinking of themselves. And as soon as a little bit, like I said, as soon as a little bit of adversity happens, they're like, I'm done. Get me the fuck out of here. And that's what I mean by independent contractors. It's just like, okay, I'm going to be in uh, Philly this year. I'm going to be in Houston next year. Then I'm going to be in LA next year. And this is, this is how I'm going to conduct my personal business, right? There's no team factor now. There's no brotherhood, if you will. It's just like, you know, hi guys, I'm here. I'm going to be here for a little bit and then I'm not. And uh, yeah, that's it. (laughs) I don't know. So that's my little rant. Uh, you know, it's the playoffs. It's an exciting time. Jimmy Butler's doing this thing. That's pretty much the only reason why I'm watching at this point. Um, but in terms of the regular season and even most of the playoffs, like I haven't, like I, I say I'm watching the playoffs, but I'm not really watching much of the playoffs. I've, I've watched a few games here and there, but I've mostly just kind of kept up with the, with the stats and, 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 and the highlights and stuff like that. But yeah, so that's my little rant. Thanks for listening. <laughs> thoughts? What are your thoughts? <laughs> Okay, well, anyways, all jokes aside, I think that's probably going to cap off today's episode. If you stuck around for this long, I want to thank you for listening. And uh, once again, I'm working on getting these episodes up on YouTube once I get my studio all set up and good to go. Ladies and gentlemen, have a great day. Stay safe, stay happy. And I'll see you on the next podcast.